Our fifth lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote to me this, pro- this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, guide us in this time of reflection upon this important text. We pray that you would sit with us, that you would comfort us, but also that you would challenge us, that you would challenge our wills, that you would challenge our ideas of how you must lead us and who you must be. Lord, I pray that we would see not the God that we envision or necessarily want, but the God that we need, the God who is. Lord, I pray that you would let that come through as we consider this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Portland is not known as a a great sports town, not in the traditional sense, at least. We don't have a major league baseball team. We don't have a national hockey league team. We don't even have an NFL team. We have to borrow ours from Seattle, which, if you think about it, is kind of weird because we're super competitive with Seattle about everything else. But the Seahawks are somehow okay in our book, and we get behind them, but not the Sounders. And if the NBA ever comes back to Seattle, we'll hate that team too. Why? Because we're madly in love with the Timbers, and we're madly in love with the Trailblazers. Now, I have a confession to make that a few weeks ago when the Timbers were playing in the MLS championship, um, I didn't watch the game. And I know that's disappointing to many of you. It's not because I don't watch TV On the Sabbath, it's because that after church, I'm tired, and I went home and took a long nap. 
But I was thrilled to wake up and find out that we, we had won. And to watch the highlights on the TV. I don't even like soccer that much, but my town is crazy about it. And because of that, strangely, when Portland wins, I win. That's how screwed up I am. And maybe you are too. And that's strangely why we're here this morning. The sermon this morning isn't part of a series, even though it does say it's part of our older series because it was Christmas this week and I didn't get my stuff to Matt on time. However, this is just a standalone sermon called The Challenge of Jesus. And anytime I get to do a standalone sermon, I find myself gravitating back to the Gospel of Luke. It's by far my favorite book in the New Testament. And in chapter 4, we encounter Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, doing his, giving his inaugural sermon. And Luke presents right up front for us the challenge of Jesus. He returns from temptation in the desert and then comes to Nazareth, which is the town he grew up in, and he goes to the synagogue on Sabbath. And it's a very typical service where you'd have a reading from Torah and reading from the prophets. And he gets handed the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61. And he begins to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind, freedom for prisoners, liberation of those oppressed. And he begins to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor as it's written down in Isaiah. But here's where the drama starts. Because he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant. And I love this. He sits down. And he sits down and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is telling them what Isaiah wrote down those many centuries before is happening now. And it's happening to you. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. They love this. They're enthusiastic about it. Isn't this Joseph's son? I knew him back when. I knew he would amount to something. I saw the potential in him. Joseph has done such a good job raising this kid. They're buzzing with enthusiasm. But then he starts to unpack it, and things change pretty quickly. Because Luke tells them that after he reads the Isaiah passage, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. That was printed. That was written he tells them that that is being fulfilled in him. He is telling them that the messianic reign, the time of Yahweh's dominion and reign upon the earth is coming to fruition right then and there in their presence in him. Now, maybe they were distracted. Maybe it took them a little time to settle in, but this is the very same claim, essentially, that they get mad at him about just a few verses later. So maybe they're distracted, but only a few verses later, they're ready to murder him and throw him off a cliff. So what's going on? Well, here's what I think. There's enough in this first part of Jesus' sermon to make them super mad, but I think they can't see the implications of what he's saying because they have these provincial lenses through which they're reading the passage or they're hearing him. At first, they're thinking, hey, this is Joseph's son. He's one of us. 
And he's developed a bit of a following in the surrounding area. And now he's come to give us a bit of home cooking. He's going to serve us a home-cooked meal. We're going to get to benefit now. All these other people have seen Jesus do these miracles, and now he's going to do them for us. And he's going to tell us that we are who Isaiah is talking about. Well, things turn on a dime here because Jesus looks out at the crowd and he doesn't believe the smiles. He doesn't believe that all of them really understand what he's saying or, and, are exact, and are enthusiastic about it. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. He's saying he's a prophet that's come to his hometown and they don't really accept him. He says, I know that you don't get it. What you really want me to say is, physician, heal thyself. This is a pretty strange aphorism, but basically what he's saying is, what you want me to say is, I'm going to take care of myself and you take care of yourself. In other words, physician, take care of your own business. We're fine here. And what Jesus is accusing them of is that they'd heard about all the miracles that he'd been doing in and around Capernaum, and now they expect him to bring home some hometown fireworks. He's going to bring his song and dance to them. In other words, they're interested in what God can do for them, not in really meeting God as he is. And so Jesus tells them some stories that they would have certainly known. And I want you to follow along if you've got your bulletin or if you bring your Bible. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now maybe you're not quite connecting the dots. It's a little bit complicated because we don't necessarily know these stories as well as his hearers would have known them, but they certainly we're beginning to connect the dots of what Jesus uh, was saying. And you can almost see them going from, yeah, I knew him back when, I believed in him, I knew he was going to be a great guy. Now they're elbowing each other and saying, would you get a load of this guy? Can you believe what he's saying? Can you believe what he's claiming? Who does he think he is? You see, what he's telling them in this little story is that the kingdom doesn't come to those who see themselves at the center but it comes to those on the margins, like this non-Jewish widow. But Jesus goes on, and he presses farther and forward. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet none of, not one of them was cleansed, only <laughs> Naaman the Syrian. And they were filled with rage. Naaman, if you've seen the new Star Wars, he's Kylo Ren. Okay, he's a really bad, bad dude. He's trouble. His redemption would be remarkable. I mean, it would be on the scale of like Darth Vader getting redeemed. Oh, wait, that happened. But it is such an astonishing thing that they do a whole trilogy on the redemption of Darth Vader. They knew these stories, and their response tells us that they read these stories like most religious insiders read them. Naaman the Syrian or this Gentile widow receiving God's grace were interesting stories, but they were interesting anomalies. They were on the circumference of what God was doing, and we shouldn't really read too much into them. 
because they're outlier stories. They're not central to the whole story. But what Jesus is saying is he's inverting their expectations. And he's saying that these stories of God's welcome of the outsider, God's love of the lost and the least, God's grace flowing to those whom religious people don't expect, that's the story. That's who God really is. And that's what Jesus has come to do. But these stories aren't anomalies at all. They're expressions of the very character and mission of God. And the implication being, of course, for all of us religious people is that God is much more gracious than we think he is. And sometimes he's more gracious than we want him to be. These are powerful stories, maybe enigmatic stories in the Old Testament. But this idea, this concept that God's love is for anyone and everyone is woven throughout the Old Testament. And some of us don't want God to be like that. We want him to be on our team. We want him to like the people we like and, by contrast, dislike the people that we dislike. But here's the thing, and here's where it's important for our own spiritual development and our own relationship with God because we don't begin to see the extravagance of God's grace for us personally until we see it going to those that we envision as least likely to receive it. Until we can begin to apply the gospel and give grace and forgiveness to those that we least want to give it to, we have a hard time giving it to ourselves and seeing it as affecting us. Embedded throughout the Old Testament is this idea that Jesus simply takes to another level that the breadth of God's grace is always surprising and often threatening to religious people. Brennan Manning, the author, says, Jesus did not die, remember this, at the hands of muggers, rapists, and thugs. He fell into the well-scrubbed hands of deeply religious people. Now, most of you here, even if you're not necessarily a Christian, you could probably quote John 3.16. You see it printed on billboards and you've heard it. It's just become part of the white noise of our culture, like Amazing Grace or the National Anthem. And thus, it's part of the background noise that we don't really consider. And so Jesus goes on in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This isn't an outlier verse. This is Jesus' own self-revelation of who he is, of what he's come to do. And who is he talking to here? He's talking to Nicodemus, a religious Pharisee. And he characterizes his ministry in the way that will be most, not least, unsettling to Nicodemus. He says, I have come, and my job is not to condemn the world, but it is to save and rescue the world. And people that you won't expect will cling to that message, and they will flock around me, and it will challenge your understanding of what grace is. His message tweaks the religious conservatives. Messages like, God seeks you, he welcomes you, he loves you, without qualification, make us nervous. 
come on, Jesus, you've got you to qualify what you're saying. You've got to give some caveats before you say that you've come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Because what if people take advantage of that? Jesus, it's not all carrot. You've got to give some stick here too, or people are going to take advantage of this and misunderstand what you're saying. But we should also notice and be careful to notice that Jesus' message isn't a challenge only for the religious. It is, after all, happening in a synagogue. It's not your most diverse, pluralistic place. It's probably very narrow, very religious, very one perspectival. These are followers of Yahweh. But who writes it down? Luke writes it down. And apparently, God, in his providence and his desire, wanted this to be written down and distributed broadly to have a wide readership. And so Luke writes it down for posterity, for everyone to read. And it challenges all of us because Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. It's not just the religious conservatives who get tweaked here, but he also challenges the religious pluralists among us, those who may say, And you've heard this, I'm sure, that I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not really a religious person. And maybe you use that language, and I understand why, because religion has very negative connotations in our day and age. But I do want you to to see that Jesus does challenge that assumption, but in a way that may be unexpected. Not because we do in fact need to put limits on God's love, but because of what's underneath that language of I'm a spiritual but not a religious person. What seems to me that is under that language oftentimes is the belief that God is not a person to whom I need to be accountable. God is someone who simply wants to bless you wherever you are, as you are, instead of being in relationship with you. But you see, if you have a relationship, it's not only, you don't have only the possibility, but you have the probability that the two wills in that relationships are go, relationship are going to cross at times. So it's 100% true that Jesus loves you and accepts you and welcomes you just as you are. But he invites you into relationship not simply into an abstract spirituality or an abstract concept. You see, because he loves you, he wants to help you see the ways that you're living contrary to your own well-being and contrary to the relationship that he's invited you into. He wants to grant you all of his grace and all of his love, not just at the entry level, but he wants to grant you grace and love in order to heal your broken parts, to bring on the cessation of your anxiety and your fear, and to grow real and sustain real hope within you. You see, his grace and love is not just entry-level stuff, but it's stuff that continues to work in the relationship. And that only happens in relationship when you allow your will to be crossed. And when Jesus preaches this sermon, if you noticed, and we're paying really close attention, we read Isaiah 61 in one of the lessons, then we read this lesson that Jesus quotes from, and he leaves something out. He leaves something very interesting out. He quotes Isaiah exactly, but then he stops, 
He quotes Isaiah about the blind receiving sight, the prisoner going free, the good news for the poor, etc. But Isaiah ends this prophecy in this way, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is where Jesus stops, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus doesn't quote this. Now, is it because he's watering down the message, he wants to make it more palatable, palatable that the God of the Old Testament is a God of vengeance and anger and wrath, and he's coming to introduce a new aspect of God? I don't think that's what it is at all. He is changing things, but it's not because he doesn't believe in vengeance. You know, the, the judgment stuff of the Old Testament, that's old-fashioned. Old fashioned. We need to update it or no one's going to listen. He doesn't omit it because he doesn't believe it. He omits it because he's come to fulfill it. Because he takes all of that vengeance and all of that judgment, all of those things that we do to ourselves, all of the things that we do to one another, all of the things that we do to the earth, and on the cross he says, bring it to me, put it on me. That's why he omits it. The day of vengeance has come in him, and all of the vengeance comes upon him. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you rejected Christianity a long time ago. Maybe it's because of that vengeance idea, that judgment idea. Or maybe you're just going through the motions of coming here this morning because that's what's expected. That's what you've always done. Or maybe you still consider yourself a Christian, but you're not sure it really matters because how you've understood Jesus hasn't been all that life-giving to you. It's become rote and routine. Well, here's the challenge. We're on the precipice of a new year, and maybe it's time to ask, if you're a religious insider, have I put restrictions on God's love for others in ways that has actually limited my understanding of his love for me? Maybe that's why my relationship with God hasn't been life-giving, hasn't been healthy. It's because I've put limitations, artificial constructed in my own brain about who he can love and how he must demonstrate that love. And in so doing, I've restricted his love on me. And I haven't understood how the breadth and the depth and the length of God's love for me. Or if we're more of the religious pluralist persuasion, maybe we should ask, have I looked for the benefits of Jesus outside of relationship? without allowing my will to be crossed. And thus, you're just stuck in your pathologies and your sin. You're stuck because you won't allow him to speak into those deep crevices, into those places that you want privacy in. And so Jesus has only been for you a concept, an idea, but not really a relationship, and therefore it's unbeneficial. Maybe it's time that we ask this year, if those, one of those two things, or maybe both of them, could be true. You see, Jesus comes to earth not to condemn the world, but to save it. He, is, he dies, but he's also resurrected, and his victory can be yours. You see, in the gospel, when he wins, you win. So take hold of that victory this year. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that we would understand the complexity of the gospel, that in back of the story there is 
vengeance and wrath and judgment, and yet it ultimately falls on you and not upon us. And yet let us understand the simplicity of the gospel, that we simply need to trust you, to let go of our demands, to let go of our will, to invite you in to all of the places in which we inhabit. And Lord, I pray that when we do so, you would meet us, you would change us, not simply as individuals, but as a church, that we would more holistically embody the good news of Jesus who came and said, my life for yours. We pray that we would live that way, and we pray that it would begin now. In Jesus' name, amen.